Um, the reason I'd like to finish up the book tonight is because I found that people, um, in my experience, by the time we get to the sixth class, it tends to, to get just old, you know. It's, it's kind of like, okay, six week of C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. So it's, it's just sometimes difficult to stay connected, I think, mentally. Um, uh, but also, I, I think that uh, in looking at everything, there's, um, there's some things I want to, to spend more time on here, but there's a number of things that I don't think we really need to spend a whole lot of time on. Um, so here we begin with, uh, with this distinction between making and begetting. Okay, now what Lewis is trying to do is he's trying to talk to us about what's called the doctrine of God or Trinitarian theology. All right, he's just trying to explain the Trinity, which, you know, has been attempted for centuries. And, you know, ultimately we can, we can understand um, some things about God, but we could never hope to understand everything about God because how could our finite minds comprehend that which is infinite, Right. So we can know some things about God, and even specifically what God is not like, um, which is called negative theology. You know, God is not evil, right? Um, God is not hateful. Um, God is not imperfect, these things. Um, so what he's trying to do, and, and he's taking a, a pretty uh, classical way of going about this that you'll, you'll find in Augustine on his work, inventively called On the Trinity, um, as well as, uh, it sounds better if it's in Latin, De Trinitate, um, you know, or, or uh, of course, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. And so one of, the, one of the things he says is, look, uh, you know, to understand uh, the relation between the Father and the Son we should first understand the difference between making and begetting. All right? If I make something, that which I make is not what I am, or it is not like me. If I make a cake, you know, I can make a cake, but it's, it's not a, I'm not a cake, you know. Uh, but if, if, two, if, a, if a man and a woman come together and make a human being. They don't really make a human being, they beget. So begetting is what we describe uh, something bringing forth the same thing. Making is, is how we describe that which is you know, brought about and is distinct from ourselves. All right, so a man and a woman beget a child. The father begets the son. Um, Ted makes beautiful cupcakes. But Ted doesn't beget cupcakes because cupcakes are not begotten of Ted. They are made by Ted, right? Um, is, it, is it okay to erase this? Up here? Because if, if you don't have this by now, you're never going to get it anyway. Or actually, we'll just do it. Just, just, uh, you know, if you didn't get that, just talk to me afterward, and I'll, I'll, I have the sheet here, actually. If somebody wants the sheet, I can give it to them right now. It's got the instructions. 
making and begetting. So when you beget something, it is of the same nature as the thing that begot it. Okay? So when we say then that Ted and Joan beget children, their children are human persons. But when we say then that the father begets the son, we're saying that the son is just of the same nature as the father. Now, human persons are not infinite, right? They're finite beings. And so when, when Ted and Joan beget children, they beget finite beings. But when the father begets the son, he begets that which has all of the same properties that he has, okay? So he's, he's uh, infinite. He's perfect. He has no beginning, okay? So the father and the son from all of eternity exist because they're of the same nature. If, if the father is 100% God and he begets the son who is of the same nature, then the Son is 100% God as well. And to be 100% God means to be infinite and perfect. So there was no beginning of the Son. It's just, it's a relationship and an existence that has simply always been. Okay? Now you might say, well, that doesn't make any sense. It makes some sense. It doesn't make all sense. And this is where we have to in theology, we just have to kind of be okay with the fact that we can make some sense of things, but we can't make all of it, and that's okay. Um, all of the theologians understood that they could never explain all that God is or what he is completely like, but they could explain some of it, largely from what? From his revelation. And he's revealed himself as infinite, perfect, all-powerful, all-good, and he's, he's revealed himself as Father and Son and Spirit. So, you know, the theologians kind of put all this stuff together in the early church and um, had lots of debates and arguments about it. And they were, come, they, they were able to come to, the, to, you know, to these definitions. And, and this is why we say the creed every Sunday, that the Father and the Son are co-equal. They're both divine. You can't be kind of divine. You're either all God or not God. Um, so, and that was one of the big debates that happened in the early church is the nature of the Son. Was he just sort of kind of God or a little bit God? You know, and uh, that was the Arian heresy. And uh, the, the church said, well, no, that's, that's illogical. You can't be a little bit God. And what does it mean that kind of a minor God died on the cross anyway? So from from all of eternity, then, the Father begets the Son, okay? And also, from all of eternity, there is this relationship between the Father and the Son. This relationship, namely, is primarily called uh, a loving relationship. From all of eternity, the Father loves the Son, and the Son returns that love to the Father. Um, and, you know... This is where, and he, he talks about it at one point here. He says, he says some people would say, well, I don't believe in a, in a God that's personal. I, you know, I only believe in a God that's sort of, you know, 
anti-personal or just sort of this being that that doesn't sort of get involved with the world, you know, basically like deism, you know, the deist god, the the clockmaker god, the god who who made everything, winds it up, and then steps away, but is not really involved. The problem with that, of course, is that everybody understands that that God is love. That's it's a point that really is is universally accepted that God is love. It's not really something that is debated by those who believe. Um, not even, you know, not even uh, non-Christians would debate that. They would say, of course God is love. Well, for there to be love, there has to be a one who bestows love and one who receives love. Love can only exist in a relationship. Um, and so, if God is love, he exists in relationship for all of eternity. And so, for all of eternity, God loves himself. He loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. But here's the crazy thing about God, is that everything he does is perfect and infinite. So, he's able to love the Son perfectly, and the Son is able to love the Father perfectly, because since they're both God, they can't do anything imperfectly. Everything they do is perfect. Um, so, it's perfect, it's infinite, it has all the properties that God has, the love that exists between them, because it has to by necessity. Okay? So, if the love is itself perfect, and it's infinite, it's really small writing here, it's perfect and infinite, so it's, it's always existed. It also, therefore, takes on the character of the third person of the Trinity. So the love that exists between the Father and the Son is properly, therefore, called the Holy Spirit. Because from all of eternity, God exists in this union of love. So if, if, if the love is perfect, it has all of the same categories, or uh, nature is a better word, it has all of the same nature that the Father and the Son has, because being itself, existence itself, is a perfection. So the love, we wouldn't say the love doesn't exist, right? We would say, well, of course it exists. Well, if the Father always existed and the Son always existed, then the love always existed. There was never a time when the love didn't exist. And the love has always been perfect and infinite. So it's always been there. It's a part of the Trinity itself. It can't be not a part of the Trinity. So all three have always existed in this communion of love. And now you perfectly understand the Trinity. This is... I mean, this is, there's more to it, but I'm, I, I just don't want to get into all of the details of it. This is the rough outline, okay, of the traditional Augustinian Thomistic understanding of the Trinity. All right, there's more details and, and more philosophy, but um, I, don't, I don't think that that's going to be helpful for us to get into. Now, one of the things he does say, and this is, I, I thought this was helpful, just, just a different way to image it, is in chapter 2 of book 4, and it's, uh, it's that long paragraph, uh, kind of right in the middle, 
And he's trying to talk about a three-personal God, three persons and one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he said, well, it's kind of like this. An ordinary, simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He's trying to get in touch with God. But if he's a Christian, he knows what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, inside of him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God, that Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening. God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he's trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. So the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. The man is being caught up into a higher kind of life, what he previously called zoe, or spiritual life, as opposed to biological life, bios. He's being pulled into God by God while still remaining himself. And Lewis says, you know, look, this is how theology started. That, that, you know, people followed Jesus, they experienced Jesus, and then they tried to do what Jesus said to do, and, and they prayed, and they had this experience of this inner motive uh, pushing them to pray and to reach out to God. They had this other understanding that Christ was beside them, helping them, and then, of course, they had a clear connection with the goal um, of, of their prayer, the end of their prayer, the Father. So operative then is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and we would still speak of uh, uh, the three persons of the, of the Trinity in the same way, that the, you know, why didn't Jesus just stay on the earth and keep preaching? Well, because he desired to be inside us. He desired to change us at a spiritual level into something else. And to do that, he sent the thing which could do that the best, that part of the Trinity which could inhabit our souls, right? The Holy Spirit, the love that existed between the Father and the Son from all of eternity, he, he bestows upon us in baptism and through all of the sacraments so that within our souls, operative is God himself. At all. This is why the church for centuries has said it's so important to try to be in the state of grace. Because when you're in the state of grace, you've got the Holy Spirit operating in your soul, perfecting you over and over and over and over. And that when you fall out of that because of sin, the focus isn't so much, oh, I'm so horrible, I sinned. It's get back up and get back into grace so that you can continue this process of God forming you into a new being. That's the whole reason for the, the church and the sacraments, is that process. Why do I have to go to Mass? That. Why do I have to confess my sins? That. Why are there priests? That. Why is there marriage? That. Everything is about that. About Christ in our souls transforming us. Or the Holy Spirit in our souls, God himself transforming us. Okay. All right, um, you know, basically, so he spends, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on, on the question of God and eternity, which is the, the chapter on time, okay? But let's pretend I am God, which 
is ridiculous. But so here is God. <laughs> Here's God, and God's making a picture, you know, and he likes bunnies. He likes stick bunnies, and he likes when they smoke cigarettes. <laughs> and uh, are cross-eyed. And, uh, you know, he's got... There's a ground there. Then, then he's got trees, you know. That's a tree. <laughs> this is time. God is outside of time in eternity. And he, and he knows what, you know, Bob the rabbit is going to do. He, because he created Bob the rabbit. He just did it. And then he knows what Bob's going to go sit under this tree and an apple is going to fall, and Bob the Rabbit's going to discover gravity. And, uh, and then in God's mind, he knows that Bob's going to marry Betty the Rabbit, and uh, they're, <laughs> they're going to have little rabbits. And he knows the whole story because he sees it from eternity. But, you know, Bob the Rabbit is just smoking a cigarette right now, and he's thinking about sitting under this tree. But that's all Bob knows because he's in time and time is linear. You know, Bob, Bob the rabbit can only live moment and experience moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. Because that's all he knows. It's all he experiences. But God is not in linear time. He stands outside of it like a painter looking at a painting. You know, and the painter, if you will, sees the painting before it's finished. Um, you know, what did Michelangelo say about, about uh, making his statues? That he was merely, you know, the statue already existed within the marble itself. That he was, he was merely getting rid of the excess, right? So the, the, the artist can see what's going to happen in their picture, even as they're just putting on the... Have you ever watched Bob Ross? On, uh, he's on, streaming on Netflix now, Bob Ross. It's one of the most relaxing things you'll ever watch. And uh, so Bob Ross, you know, he's putting on all his black stuff or white stuff, or I forget all the colors he uses. And, but he already knows what he's going to paint, you know. He's gonna, and you know that sooner or later he's going he's gonna to put one of those ginormous trees right in the middle of the painting because he always does, and he ruins the painting. But anyway, he, um, he knows what the painting's going to be before he finishes it. It's in his mind, you know. And in a sense, it's present to him already, and he stands outside of it. Um, he knows the layers that, that he's going to bring. He's going to he's going to bring to bear on the painting. He knows how it's going to end up. Or you might think of a novelist. You know, a novelist um, writes the story um, of of all, all of his characters in the story. He knows. He knows their back. It may, not even, it may not even make it into the story he writes. He knows their background. He knows their future. He knows their relationships. And he puts it all, all, all onto paper at some particular point. You know, but the character itself, if it could experience its existence within the story, wouldn't be able to experience the end of the story. It would only experience what it experiences in a linear fashion. But God, like a novelist or a painter, stands outside of that as he has created things and set them in motion. 
So for God then, and this is the crucial point of the image, this is the crucial point, that for God everything is present. Everything is an eternal present or an eternal now. He sees everything past, present, and future all at once. Okay? So when we, we talk about, well, what does God know? He knows everything because he's not in it. He's outside of it. Okay? That's kind of the most important thing there. Uh, good infection, chapter 4. Now, Lewis is he's just setting us up for what I think are the the chapter nine, which I think is the is uh, for me one of the greatest chapters in in Christian literature. But um, you know what he's saying is what what the son is trying to do, and we've already talked about it with with the sacraments, and and Lewis doesn't really go there because, and the reason he doesn't go there specifically is because all of the Christian churches have different ways of speaking of this process, okay? And the process is that we're basically to become like Christ. We're, be, we're to become little Christs. You know, in the Eastern church, they speak of becoming, you know, divinized. Um, you know, in, in other churches, they'll speak of it in other ways, all right? But we're to become little Christs, all right? And so the way he speaks of this is that, that Christ is the source who puts a good infection into us, which is his life. In the same way, we must think of the sun always, so to speak, streaming forth from the Father like light from a lamp or heat from a fire or thoughts from a mind. He is the self-expression of the Father, what the Father has to say. Oh, this is where he talks about the God is love thing. Ah, I already covered that. All right, that's good. Okay, and then we get to kind of in the middle there. Because he's talking about, he, f- he finally gets to the Holy Spirit there in that relationship of love. And he says, well, you know, what's it all about? What's the point? What does it matter? It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us. We're putting it the other way around. Each one of us has got to enter that pattern take his place in that dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which we were made. Good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get in the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prizes which God could, if he chose, just hand out. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? And so further on, now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, not made. Right? Because we were made by God, we weren't begotten by God. So how can God you know, bring us into that relationship of being begotten? 
All right? It's if we share in Christ's life. This life which always has existed and always will exist. Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we also shall be sons of God. We shall love the Father as He does, and the Holy Spirit will arise in us. He came to this world and became man in order to spread to other man, men the kind of life He has, by what I call good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming Christian is simply nothing else. That's the, that's the goal of, of the whole thing, the whole deal. This is what Jesus, you know, because you think about it. Why, okay, so God becomes man and unites that which God had made with which God had begotten, right? Because the Father begets the Son. So he unites the human, or the divine nature with the human nature, that which is begotten with that which is made. He does that first in himself. And then he says, what I have done in myself, I want to do in you. Well, how do we do that? We do that through the, through the, through the grace, the grace, the Holy Spirit that he has sent through the sacraments. That's the whole point, again, of, of Christianity. Because I, back to, I guess, what I was thinking initially, you know, why didn't God just heal everybody or stop all, of suf- all the suffering? And, and you know, why, didn't, why doesn't God do X, Y, and Z? which I think a lot of us wonder from time to time. You know, this horrible world we live in is not always horrible, but sometimes it's pretty horrible. Why didn't God just stop all that? It's not his goal. That's not his purpose. That, that's not his mission. It's just to stop that. What, he'll, what he will do is he'll use all of that horribleness to bring about that which he really wants, which is that we become little Christs, that we become like Him. And this is why many people can say that in their worst moments of life, they look back on that and some of the worst suffering they've ever endured, and they can look back upon that and they can say, it changed me for the better, or rather, God changed me because I let Him, because I used it as an occasion to bring about a greater good, or rather, I allowed Him to bring about a greater good. Now, he, he goes to this uh, example of obstinate toy soldiers. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to describe what it means for a person to progress from merely that biological life to that spiritual life, right? What, does it, what would it look like for a person to actually be transformed? And, and again, you know, you know, by now you know how he is. He uses all these different examples. And so he uses obstinate toy soldiers. And so he says, the present state of things is this. The two kinds of life, biological life and spiritual life, are now not only different, they've always been different, but they're actually opposed. And this is because of what we would say original sin. All right, We would say, well, original sin, these are the effects of original sin, the tradition would say. He says, the natural life in each of us is something self-centered, something that wants to be petted and admired to take advantage of others of other lives, to exploit the whole universe, and especially it wants to be left to itself, to keep well away from anything better or stronger or higher than it, anything that might make it feel small. It is afraid of the light and air of the spiritual world, just as people who have been brought up to be dirty are afraid of a bath. And in a sense, it is quite right. It knows 
that if the spiritual life gets a hold of it, all its self-centeredness and self-will are going to be killed. And it is ready to fight tooth and nail to avoid that. This is one of the things that really appealed to me when I was younger about Lewis, was just the, just the way he writes. Um, remember when I started off, I said there was a, I, I found at that age a masculinity in, in his writing that I hadn't found in, in other writing. And I didn't say that to exclude other people from finding things, just that subjectively that's what I found. That's what appealed to me, was a sort of honesty and rigor and clarity of thought um, that really convicted me. So, you know, what he's saying is, look, every single one of us, it, it, and I, I think it's great how he talks about it because he recognizes there are plenty of people doing all the right things. And they're going to church and they're helping out. Maybe they're in St. Vincent de Paul or they're, I don't know, they're a lector or they're, I'm not looking at anybody and that's why I'm looking at the ceiling. You know, or they're, I don't know. Or they're a priest. They're a priest or they're a bishop or, you know, and uh, anybody. Anybody. No one's excluded. And they could be thinking they're doing all the right things, but they're not letting this happen. They're not allowing, their, as Lewis would say, their natural selves to be killed so that God can remake them. And therefore, Lewis isn't saying necessarily that they're lost, but that the process has to start. The process has to continue at some point. In other writings, Lewis will talk about how God actually can make that happen. Like in the problem of, uh, the problem of pain, he'll talk about how he gets to the, the stubborn people like me. Um, and uh, um, the other thing that, that he does a great job of is the way he talks about hell. And he, he'll do this in, he'll do this in Problem of Pain, he'll do this here, and then especially in The Great Divorce with its just amazing uh, imagery. It's a totally different book than this. I, I think we're going to end up doing it because it's just too awesome not to. Plus, I'm the teacher, so I get to pick. But um, it's amazing, though. It's really, really cool. But the way he describes hell is not like this uh, like punishment from God, you know, where God's just, just horribly punishing people. He describes it, as he says here, um, you know, it's afraid of anything that might make it feel small, right? The natural self, that it, that it desires alienation and isolation and not God for all of eternity. And this is the way he describes even souls in, in hell when, in, in the great divorce, that they're, they're isolated from God, it, but it's a self-imposed isolation, in a sense, it's almost as if they, they have to hold on to their natural selves so tightly and they're so afraid of what God might do to them that they can't let go. And so God won't force it upon them, that he'll allow them uh, their isolation and alienation for all of eternity, where, which is where he'll say, Lewis says, uh, that the doors of hell are locked from the inside, that, that people are you know, rebels until the end. They lock the doors to get away from God. That those would be the people in hell. Because anybody who wants to be with God, God's going to find a way to make it happen. You know, even just the, the, the smallest beginnings of it or the imperfections of it, that willingness to be changed in some way, God's going to find a way. So it's only the ones who say, don't touch me, stay away, that, that would end up in hell because by necessity, because God can't, for he can woo, but he can't force. 
so then he compares this process to toy soldiers, you know. Imagine when you're a kid, like Kathleen's little animals back there. You know, imagine them coming to life, which would be really cool to have little miniature animals, except for skunks, come to life. <laughs> and, um, you know, what would that be like, you know, turning something, you know, plastic into flesh? And suppose that the little animal didn't like it, didn't like to be turned into flesh. He wasn't interested at all in it. He sees that it's, it's, you know, natural self, if you will, is being spoiled. He thinks you're killing him. He'll do anything he can to prevent you. Now, what you would have done about that tin soldier, let me go back to that metaphor, I do not know. But what God did about us was this. The second person in God, the Son, became human, was born into the world as a man, a real man of a particular height, with hair of a particular color, speaking a particular language, weighing so many pounds. The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think of how you would like to become a slug or a crab. Now the result was this that you now had one man who really was what all men were intended to be. One man in whom the created life derived from his mother allowed itself to be completely and perfectly turned into the begotten life. The natural human creature in him was taken up fully into the divine son. Thus, in one instance, humanity had arrived, so to speak, had passed into the life of Christ. And because the whole difficulty for us is that the natural life has to be, in a sense, killed, he chose an earthly career which involved the killing of his human desires at every turn. Okay. So, in one sense, and this is, this is true of, of Catholic theology as well as Protestant theology, in one sense, what Christ has done has already be, been done for us. It's already been achieved. Humanity is already saved in principle. We individuals have to appropriate that salvation. You know, because that's why when you hear prayers at Mass or, or something, and it talks about how we're saved and God has saved us, or you're reading Scripture, God has saved us, then you think, well, I don't have to do anything. Why am I here? I'm going fishing. You know, what is this about? Well, you know, there's the particular, there's the general, and then there's the particular. Yes, God has, in Christ, God has saved all of humanity. Everyone is saved. It's already been done. The work is done. It just has to be appropriated. Essentially, you know, you've got to let it happen for you. You've got to let it happen for you. You're already halfway there, don't worry. You're far along. Lewis, on the other hand. Lewis and I are stuck. We're still working on it. Okay, so then he goes, to, let me skip to chapter 7, um, because the, the next point then is, all right, so fine, if, if it's already been done, if Jesus already did it for us, and salvation is there, and now I just need to appropriate it, what does that look like? How do I do that? How do I become saved myself? And the first thing he does is he says, okay, well, you just have to start pretending like you are what you want to be. Um, so that if you want to be a son of God, you know, one who, who is united, who has united his, uh, 
his bios and zoe, you know, his, his natural and spiritual life, has united that which is made and that which is begotten, or received that which is begotten. If, if we desire for that to happen and take place, start acting like it has. Get down on your knees and pray the, the Our Father, you know, he says. I was going to say the Hail Mary, but then it wouldn't be mere Christianity, because not all Christians pray the Hail Mary, of course. But using, using the, but as Catholics, right, whatever, pick a prayer, doesn't matter. Pick something. Start acting like you are already a son or daughter of God. And what you'll find is, he says, that the more that you start acting like in that moment that you are a child of God, that you are begotten of God, very quickly you'll soon find that other things start to pop up and you start to consider other areas of your life that need to be incorporated into that. That very quickly you'll find that you are becoming that which you were first pretending. Does that make sense? Um, this, is very, this is very similar to something called Pascal's Wager. Are you familiar with that, Blaise Pascal? Yeah. Uh, Pascal's Wager, which is, uh, you know, for those who, who denied the existence of God, I mean, there's, more to, there's a whole, you know, book on this, but for those who, who were, 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 you know, questioning the existence of God. Does God really exist? I don't know if he exists. <laughs> Atheism looks probable, but I don't know. You know, essentially what he said is, well, all right, if you're going to make a wager, <laughs> would you wager that, I mean, wh- where, where's the best money? Is it on God doesn't exist, and so you live as though he didn't, and then you find out he did? Or is the better money that I'm not sure if he exists, but maybe I'll start acting like he does exist just in case he does exist. And essentially, you know, Pascal wasn't saying just fake it till you make it, but he kind of was because he knew, <laughs> because he knows, and, and, and like so many of us know, that as soon as we start to bend our nature to do the thing that we, you know, are, are seeking to become, that we actually become it. I mean, it, it, uh, if you're going to become a baseball player, you, you first have to start practicing hitting and fielding and throwing. And, and, but you wouldn't say somebody who just started out and who can't hit a ball is a baseball player. I mean, you'd say they're trying, but they're not a player yet. You know, They're not really a, a baseball player. But after they work at it and work at it and work at it, they become... It. Now, they may, you know, there's different degrees and qualities of, of a baseball player or, or any sport or any musician or whatever. But the process is always the same. It starts with the act of the will, doing that which we want to, doing that poorly, which we someday want to perfect and do well. And so this is what Lewis is, I mean, he's sort of just giving advice. Like, this is what it looks like. And then he says, you'll find, you'll find as you move on that you're no longer thinking simply about right and wrong, doing good and avoiding evil, but you're trying to catch the good infection from a person. The real son of God is at your side. He's beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He's beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought, his spiritual life, his zoe, into you. 
beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live man. The part of you that does not like it is the part of you that is still tin. Okay. Eight. Is Christianity hard or easy? And essentially, he says, well, it depends on what you think Christianity is, what the goal is, you know. And um, so if the goal or the ordinary idea of becoming a Christian is simply that, well, you know, I want to incorporate some morals, uh, some decent behavior, or it's good for society, um, you know, many people will just go in for Christianity trying to achieve that small goal. Um, and what we mean by being good is giving in to, uh, you know, those claims of morality, decent behavior. Some of the things the ordinary self wanted to do turn out to be what we call wrong. Well, we must give them up. Other things which the self did not want to do turn out to, but what, to be what we call right, and we have to do them. But we're hoping all the time that when all the demands have been met, the stuff we have to do. So... This is, a, this is a very early stage of the person who's a Christian is they're focused on the stuff they have to do. It's not dissimilar to a child who has chores. Is that all I have to do? Because I want to go play. And as soon as they get all the stuff done that they have to do, then they can play. And adults kind of do the same thing. You know, how much do I have to do or not do and then once that's done, then, I, then, then maybe I can be left alone. Then God will leave me alone. Just, you just got to follow the commandments. He'll leave me alone. I'm good to go. I can go watch football. Um, he says, we're very much like an honest man paying his taxes. He pays them all right, but he does hope that there will be enough left over for him to live on. <laughs> because we are still taking our natural self as a starting point. Does that make sense what he's getting at? So we have this natural self that we're trying to hold on to. And essentially what he's saying is that we're seeing the practice of Christianity as duty, as obligation. So here's me, my natural self. Lord, what are the things I have to do? That's, what, that's my vision at this stage of what Christianity is. Okay, I'll do those things, but I'm still, you know, I, I'm still left to myself. You know, and as long as I pay my dues, like the taxes, then I still have sort of myself left over. And he says, look, this is, I mean, it's, it's understandable that somebody is at this stage, but we are not yet to the point of, what, of accepting what Christ wants to do to us. And he says, as long as we're thinking this way, one, of, one or other of two results are likely to follow. First, either we give up trying to be good, or else we become very happy, unhappy indeed. For make no mistake, if you are really going to try to meet all the demands made on the natural self, it will not have enough left over to live on. The more you obey your conscience, the more your conscience will demand of you. And your natural self, which is thus being starved and hampered and worried at every turn, will get angrier and angrier. In the end, 
you will either give up trying to be good or else become one of those people who, as they say, live for others, but always in a discontented, grumbling way, always wondering why the others do not notice it more and always making a martyr of yourself. And once you have become like that, you will be a far greater pest to anyone who has to live with you than you would have been if you had remained frankly selfish. If you had just been honest about your selfishness and just been selfish from the start. Um, okay, so, so the person who sees being Christian as merely obligation, what do I have to do, will keep trying to just fulfill the obligations. But the more you fulfill the obligations, the more you realize that the claims of the conscience never stop. That you're never really, it's never enough. It's like a government that taxes 100%. It's never, whatever you make is never enough. And so a person first would perhaps just give up and say, I just, this is ridiculous. I, I, what, are the, what does God expect? I've done all these good things. What does he want? Everything. And, and the person just gives up. Or the, or the other one says, well, they'll keep doing it. They'll keep trying to become, become good. And, you know, but they just become those miserable church people. There's so many miserable church people. They're just miserable. I think, why is there no joy in your life? God came to save me and died on the cross, and I'm miserable. Well, holy cow, it might be better if you're an atheist then, because that, that looks horrible. I mean, I don't mean that. I don't mean it would be better to be an atheist. But, <laughs> but whatever you're becoming is not what the Lord wants to give you. God does not want you to live in that kind of misery, always thinking of all the things you're doing and, and all of the efforts you're making and then becoming more and more bitter at God and, you know, the other people in your church and that horrible priest who never recognizes you for all of the good you're doing. We don't really like him anyway. All right. The Christian way is different, harder and easier. And this is, the, this is one of those paragraphs to outline, because I, I think it's, get your pens out. <laughs> it's uh, chapter 8, uh, sort of the second page there. The, the Christian way, I should probably use the same book as you, that would make sense. But yeah. the Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it's far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we're trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves 
to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time be good. We're all trying to let our mind and our heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping, in spite of this, to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. As he said, a thistle cannot produce figs. If I am a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. It must be plowed up and re-sown. And I think that this is so insightful because this is, I think this is a lot of our experience. You know, what we're, we're just trying to be good, but we're still pursuing all that other natural, all those natural things that we want to keep, whether it be money or possessions or temporal happiness or things. In the, we're trying to pursue all that, but at the same time, we're going to church and trying to be good. And we're trying to sort of split, you know, hedge our bets. We, we want both everything this life can give us, our natural desires, and then we also want to fulfill whatever it is is expected of us so we can get to heaven. And Lewis is saying, it's BS. I didn't want to swear, there's children here, and Ted. <laughs> Lewis is saying, it's, that's, it's, it's, not, it's not going to work. It doesn't work because that's not what Christ is after. He's not after half measures. He wants you. He wants me for all of eternity. He's not concerned about your, your temporal happiness, really, how wealthy you are or, you know, how many physical and, you know, ailments you might have or whether you lose your hair, what kind of car you drive. I don't think he cares. I don't think he cares because all of those pursuits are sort of ourselves protecting our natural selves, as it were, as Lewis would say, our natural happiness or our, our, our happiness in this life. What he wants is to, to completely remake us. And to do that, we have to fully submit. We have to give everything over. And he says, look, you can only do it. Oh, there's a really good quote here. It's, it's uh, two paragraphs later. Um, we can only do it for moments at first. But this new sort of life slowly but surely starts spreading through our system. Because we are letting him work at the right part of us. It's the difference between paint, which is merely laid on the surface, and a dye or stain which soaks right through. He never talked vague, idealistic gas. When he said be perfect, he meant it. He meant that we must go in for the full treatment. It is hard, but the sort of compromise we are all hankering after is harder. In fact, it's impossible. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for it to, turn, to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are like eggs at present, and you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary decent egg. We must be hatched or go bad. Egg learning to fly. Okay, so, good, I'm right on time. Chapter 9 is my favorite chapter ever. I would put this in the Bible if I could. I'm not exaggerating. I would put this like right next to St. Paul if I could, which I don't mean to be blasphemous. I'm just saying what it, you know, what it means to me and how much I've gone back to this chapter. I mean, I think I just have to read the whole chapter. It's not long, but it, it just it kills me to leave about anything out.
All right. I find a good many people have bothered by what I have been bothered by what I said in the last chapter about our Lord's words, be ye perfect. Some people seem to think this means, unless you are perfect, I will not help you. And as we cannot be perfect then, if he meant that, our position is hopeless. But I do not think he did mean that. I think he meant, the only help I will give is help to become perfect. You may want something less, but I will give you nothing less. Let me explain. When I was a child, I often had a toothache, and I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for the night and let me get to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not until the pain became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew the dentists. I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth, which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they took an L. Do you know what an L is? Yeah, I had to look it up. It's the measurement from your elbow to the tip of your finger. So if you gave them an inch, they would take 18 inches. All right. Now, if I may put it that way, our Lord is like the dentist. <laughs> this is funny. If you give him an inch, he will take an L. He'll take 18. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some one particular sin which they are ashamed of, like masturbation or physical cowardice, or which is obviously spoiling daily life, like bad temper or drunkenness. Well, he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you asked, but if once you call on him, he will give you the full treatment. That's why he warned people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you are in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I am going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest, nor let you rest, until you are literally perfect, until my Father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you, as he said he was well pleased with me. This I can do and will do, but I will not do anything less. I think that's profound. I mean, even here, right, he leaves room for purgatory, some kind of, pur you know, purification after death, that this is what God is after. He's not interested in us just becoming nice. We'll get to that in the next chapter, but he, 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 he wants to completely transform us. Let me continue. And yet, this is the other and equally important side of it. This helper, who will in the long run be satisfied with nothing less than absolute perfection, will also be delighted with the first feeble stumbling effort you make tomorrow to do the simplest duty. As a great Christian writer, George MacDonald, pointed out, 
Every father is pleased at the baby's first attempt to walk. No father would be satisfied with anything less than a firm, free, manly walk in a grown-up son. In the same way, he said, God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. The practical upshot is this. On the one hand, God's demand for perfection need not discourage you in the least in your present attempts to be good, even in your present failures. Each time you fall, he will pick you up again. And he knows perfectly well that your own efforts are never going to bring you anywhere near perfection. On the other hand, you must realize from the outset that the goal towards which he is beginning to guide you is absolute perfection. And no power in the whole universe except you yourself can prevent him from taking you to that goal. That is what you are in for. And it's very important to realize that. If we do not, then we are very likely to start pulling back and resisting him after a certain point. I think that many of us, when Christ has enabled us to overcome one or two sins that, we were, that were an obvious nuisance, are inclined to feel that we are now good enough. He has done all we wanted him to do, and we should, feel, and we should be obliged if he would leave us now alone. Let me read that again. That sounds funny. I think many of us, when Christ has enabled us to overcome one or two sins that were an obvious nuisance, are inclined to feel that we are now good enough. He has done all we wanted him to do, and we should, fee- we should be obliged if he would now <laughs> leave us alone. All right, you got rid of those sins. Leave me alone. As we say, I never expected to be a saint. I only wanted to be a decent, ordinary chap. And we imagine when we say this that we are being humble. But this is the fatal mistake. Of course we never wanted and never asked to be made into the sort of creatures he is going to make us into. But the question is not what we intended ourselves to be, but what he intended us to be when he made us. He is the inventor. We are only the machine. He is the painter. We are only the picture. How should we know what he means us to be like? You see, he has already made us something very different from what we were long ago before we were born, When we were inside our mother's bodies, we passed through various stages. We were once rather like vegetables and once rather like fish. It was only at a later stage that we became like human babies. And if we had been conscious at those earlier stages, I dare say we would have been quite contented to stay as vegetables or fish. Should not have wanted to be made into babies. But all the time he knew his plan for us and was determined to carry it out. Something the same is now happening at a higher level. We may be content to remain what we call ordinary people, but he is determined to carry out a quite different plan. To shrink back from that plan is not humility. It is laziness and cowardice. To submit to it is not conceit or megalomania. It's obedience. Here's another way of putting the two sides of the truth. On the one hand, we must never imagine that our own unaided efforts can be relied on to carry us even through the next 24 hours as decent people. On the other hand, no possible degree of holiness or heroism which has ever been recorded of the greatest saints is beyond what he is determined to produce in every one of us in the end. The job will not be completed in this life, but he means to get us as far as possible before death. That is why we must not be surprised if we are in for a rough time. When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well, 
in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected. He often feels that it would, be, it would now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When troubles come along, illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptation, he's disappointed. These things, he feels, might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his bad old days, but why now? Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level, putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of being before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. I find I must borrow yet another parable from George MacDonald. Imagine yourself as living in a house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He's going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. He said that we were gods, and he's going to make good on his words. If we let him, we can prevent him, if we choose. But if we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a god or a goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. As we finish up with the last two chapters, I just want to point out a couple of things. Um, nice people are new men. One of the objections to Christianity is, well, if Christianity is so good and it's meant to do just what he said it's meant to do, why are Christians so awful? <laughs> Essentially, that's the question. You know, why are, why are Christians mean? You know, um, do you remember with, with the, flooding in, the flooding in Houston? Um, flooding in Houston that just happened and then uh, there's that one pastor who didn't immediately open up his uh, his church who's that guy's name again oh yeah Joel Olstein. so he didn't he didn't immediately open up his his church you know to people who who were look, who needed a place to stay what struck me was how many people became experts on Christianity <laughs> and Christian ethics I'm not defending Joel I don't know. I don't know the situation. I don't know. But, you know, I mean, I would say he probably didn't handle it well, but, but what was really clear was all the people, and I was reading all kinds of comments and all kinds of commentary, 
who were calling him a hypocrite. Christian people shouldn't act this way. You know, um, you know, you, you call yourself a Christian. I mean, all that stuff. It was just amazing how much people became experts on, on, on how he should be. Never mind that they weren't doing it themselves. Or, you know, some were doing stuff. I mean, a lot of people were doing stuff. But, you know, a lot, I mean, a number of people probably maybe wouldn't have done the same thing. I don't know what they would have done in the same position. But they became very judgmental about how, is, how a Christian is supposed to act. This is how you're supposed to act, and he's not acting that way. I bring up that point because when we act in a way that non-Christians or marginal Christians, I don't know, not practicing Christians, when, when we act in a way that they do not think is Christian, it, it scandalizes them and galvanizes them against Christianity. Um, and, you know, in one sense, okay, fine. Like, you, you should, even the Lord said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. You know, the quality of a person, is, you know, you'll, you'll see by the fruit that they produce. Okay, so there is something to it. But on the other hand, he says, and I'm going to let you read this. He, he gives a couple of points, though, to, to consider in that chapter. Number one, you know, he says, look, the world is way too complex to just divide people into the Christians and non-Christians. He said there's a, there's a great, great number of people who are slowly ceasing to be Christian, but who still call themselves by the name. Some of them are clergymen. There are other people who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not yet call themselves so. There are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so strongly attracted to him that they are his in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. And there are others in other religions who are being led to by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. So to just lump people into you Christians and, you know, well, it's, it's just... I mean, he's essentially saying that's just not really fair. Um, but he does, he does in, in the second one, he says, well, let's come down to bat brass tacks, though. All right. If Christianity is true, then it ought to follow that, A, any Christian will be nicer than the same person would be if he were not a Christian. B, that any man who becomes a Christian will be nicer than he was before. But, of course, he says that that's not necessarily so. However, going a little deeper, well, no, let me skip that. So then he, he, <laughs> he talks about Dick and, uh, who's, the, who's the other one? Stop. Miss Bates. Miss Bates and Dick Firkin, made up people. And... Uh, he says, all right, well, look, is, is it really, though, just about becoming nice people? Because that's what normally people judge the Christian on. Well, he wasn't, father wasn't nice to me. He wasn't nice. Well, sometimes I have a bad day. I'm sorry. And sometimes I'm not nice. Am I a bad Christian? Oh. I don't know if one could really tell that by my, the fact that I didn't eat breakfast that day. Is it an indication of something deeper or is it not? I'm kind of ornery at times. So is my natural disposition really to be judged in the same way as, as Dick's placid temper and friendly disposition? Some people 
have this really pleasant disposition. They just smile like so naturally. I don't get it personally. I don't know how it happens. Um, yeah, <laughs> they're just really, really nice and friendly and it's, it's cool. I'm like, well, that's nice. I am not that way. And so, well, is there something wrong with me? Well, at this stage in my life, I realized that we, there are just different personalities. And some people are gifted with, you know, a personality that has a very, you know, agreeable temperament and, and all the rest. Um, so they appear nice. I mean, I've met some of the nicest people, but they're the, they're the, they, they're the most passive-aggressive, backstabbing people you'll ever meet. We've all met those people. They're so nice. But it always gets back to Father what you're saying about him. <laughs> so, you know, but then there's poor Ms. Bates. We should just use Father John. The narrow mind and jangled nerves which account for most of her nastiness. So how do we compare the two? Well, what he says um, here, let me see if I can find it. Do not misunderstand me. Of course God regards a nasty nature and a bad, as a bad and deplorable thing. And of course, he regards a nice nature as a good thing. Good like bread or sunshine or water. But these are the good things which he gives and we receive. So he created Dick's sound nerves and good digestion, and there's plenty more where that came from. It cost God nothing, as far as we know, to create nice things. But to convert rebellious wills cost him crucifixion. And because they are wills, they can, in nice people just as much as nasty ones, refuse his request. And then, because that niceness in Dick was merely part of nature, it will all go to pieces in the end. Nature herself will all pass away. Natural causes come together in Dick to make a pleasant psychological pattern, just as they come together in a sunset to make a pleasant pattern of colors. Presently, they will fall apart again, and the pattern in both cases will disappear. Dick has had the chance to turn that momentary pattern into the beauty of an eternal spirit, and he has not taken it. Ah, so there's a paradox. As long as Dick does not turn to God, he thinks his niceness is his own. And just as long as he thinks that, it is not his own. It is when Dick realizes that his niceness is not his own gift, is his own, but a gift from God, and when he offers it back to God, it is just then that it begins to be really his own. For now, Dick is beginning to take a share in his own creation. The only things we can keep are the things we freely give to God. What we try to keep for ourselves is just what we are sure to lose. So, in other words, you know, he's getting this objection. Well, not all Christians are nice. All right, fine, they're not. Um, so shouldn't they all be nice? And what he's basically saying is, well, let's look at niceness. You know, there's a lot of nice people, but just being nice itself is not what God's after. God is, offer, is after that, that abandonment of self to him. And the, the really nice person who is gifted with this beautiful temperament still has to give himself over to God. And if he doesn't do it, he's just as damned as the, as the ornery, you know, Miss Bates, who just had the natural, ugly disposition. There's a really the, couple cool parts here, though, that I, because I, uh, he, he just really has compassion on people like me, um, which is why I want to read it to you. 
He said it's very different for the nasty people, the little, low, timid, warped, thin-blooded, lonely people, or the passionate, sensual, unbalanced people. If they make any attempt at goodness at all, they learn in double-quick time that they need help. It is Christ or nothing for them. It is taking up the cross and following or else despair. They are the lost sheep. He came specially to find them. They are, in one very real and terrible sense, the poor. He blessed them. They are the awful set he goes about with. And of course, the Pharisees say still, as they said from the first, if there were anything in Christianity, those people would not be Christians. There is either a warning or an encouragement here for every one of us. If you are a nice person, if virtue comes easily to you, beware. Much is expected from those to whom much is given. If you mistake for your own merits what are really God's gifts to you through nature, and if you are contented with simply being nice, you are still a rebel. And all those gifts will only make your fall more terrible, your corruption more complicated, your bad example more disastrous. The devil was an archangel once. His natural gifts were far, as far above yours as yours are above those of a chimpanzee. But if you are a poor creature, poisoned by a wretched upbringing in some, some house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels, saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that makes you snap at your best friends, do not despair. He knows all about it. You are one of the poor whom he blessed. He knows what a wretched machine you are trying to drive. Keep on. Do what you can. One day, perhaps in another world, but perhaps far sooner than that, he will fling it on the scrap heap and give you a new one. And then you may astonish us all, not least yourself, for you have learned your driving in a hard school. Niceness. Wholesome, integrated personality is an excellent thing. We must try by every medical, educational, economic, and political means in our power to produce a world where as many people as possible grow up nice, just as we must try to produce a world where all have plenty to eat. But we must not suppose that even if we succeed in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world, and might even be more difficult to save. For mere improvement is not redemption, though redemption always improves people even here and now, and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it has got its wings, it will soar over fences which could never have been jumped and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. But there may be a period while the wings are just beginning to grow when it cannot do so. And at that stage, the lumps on the shoulders, no one could tell by looking at them that they are going to be wings, may even give it an awkward appearance. You know, so I... I mean, he's got something there kind of for everyone, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know everybody's story, you know, and, and uh, I'm still trying to understand my own story, to be quite honest. And, you know, we've all been dealt certain hands in life, you know, from our upbringing and 
our youth and into adulthood. And uh, some of us had, have had great um, natural sort of like the dispositions, you know, sort of great things that can really help us where other people haven't been given those same gifts. But nonetheless, they're still gifts. And, and, and what Lewis is trying to say is, look, just because you, you're a nice person doesn't mean you're saved. Because ultimately, even the nice person has to do with the, what the person who has a whole lot less to work with has to do. In the end, they all, everyone has to submit if they're to be saved and to let God do what he needs to do. And so as we conclude the last two pages there of chapter uh, is it 11? The New Men? 11. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. There is so much of him that millions and millions of little Christs, all different, would still be too few to express him fully. He made them all. He invented, as an author invents characters in a novel, all the different men that you and I were intended to be. In that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It's no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own hereditary and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I can never stop. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, especially as, and this is what, the late 40s now, and so psychology is still relatively new, you know. Um, it's, I mean, it, it's still actually kind of relatively new for us, but especially back then it was very relatively new. But, you know, I mean, he's getting at concepts here that um, we very much know and understand and they're just sort of of a part of our our language you know today right we know that if we grew up in a difficult upbringing and of course he does too but that that it affects us psychologically you know and that that it it leads to certain uh, Jung would say complexes or you know Freud would say what reaction formation or you know, and then it, it plays itself out in, in other things to use psychological language like, um, you know, projection, um, uh, you know, and it, it, it just really kind of messes with all of our relationships, right? Our, our upbringing and, and trauma that we've experienced through life, it, it has this claim on us. And the, the, the more that we try to stay in that, that natural self, the more that we're actually enslaved by it because we're not giving ourselves over to Christ. But when we can work through all of that stuff and essentially let it, understand it and let it go, all of that negativity that we've experienced, when we can understand it, when we can let it go, what happens is we allow ourselves to, to truly make a gift of who we really are because all that other stuff isn't really us. It's stuff that happened to us and created, you know, psychological pathology within us, behavioral pathology within us. Getting rid of that stuff or overcoming it allows us to do this process in a far greater way than than we could have ever done before. 
Most of us don't want to do that because it's far too painful. So people repress it. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it because it's, it's hard. You know, it's painful stuff. But when you can actually bring that up and, and bring it out, what it allows, I think, the person to do is it allows the person to, to more fully give themselves to this process and to Christ. And then what he does is, is he helps you to discover your true self, your true, who you were truly meant to be from the beginning before all this other crap got in the way and clung to you like barnacles on a boat. When you can get rid of all that stuff, submit then to Christ, then he shows you, well, this is what I intended. And because of sin and because of evil and because of all the rest, this has been a process and you've had to deal with it. But it's the process. That's the process. That's what it's about. That's, that's life. That's, that's what we're supposed to go through. So why does he leave all that stuff there? For that process. To go through all of that. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts or even suggested to me by devils. Propaganda will be the real origin of what I regard as my own personal political ideals. I am not in my natural state nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained. That, that's interesting. I, th- I thought that was really interesting. And it, it, it's, it's a lot of what I was just saying. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained because we're still holding on to all that junk. And we hold on to it and we hold on to it and we're determined by it. And you can, you know, you can have a talk with somebody and go, oh, okay, that's your per-. It's very clear. It can be very easily explained because the person, if they're still bound to all of that stuff, is really enslaved and determined by it. You know, that's their personality is determined by these past experiences. It's when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. At the beginning, I said there were personalities in God. I will go further now. There are no real personalities anywhere else. Until you have given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. Sameness is to be found most among the most natural men, not among those who surrender to Christ. How monotonously alike all the great tyrants and conquerors have been. How gloriously different are the saints. And so to conclude, but there must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours and yours because it is his, Your real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. You can't find it by looking for it. You can only find it by looking or searching for him. Does that sound strange? 
The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters, even social life. You will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without carrying two pence, how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose yourself, you lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your be being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. And that is the end of the class. Thank you.